Amen, amen. All right, go ahead and pull your outline out and we'll just, here's what we'll do. I'm gonna loosely follow the outline. In fact, I'll just give you the recap of last week and then you can probably put the outline aside and read it later. I'm gonna cover all the verses on the outline, but this, this message is better uh, preached than it is teached. I know teached isn't a word, but it rhymes. So <clears throat> let's just recap last week. Last week, we talked about where we were uh, as a nation, at the church in America. We talked about the challenging situation that we're looking at with this election. And, uh, and I propose this, that God is not surprised. He's not surprised that both these candidates are seriously wanting. He's not shocked. He's not wondering who he's gonna vote for. Uh, th the thing is the Lord is frustrating our choices. He's frustrating human leadership right now. He's bringing us to the place where we have one choice and that's Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone, that's our choice. And so as a spiritual family, what we've said is for the next several months, we have a theme of prioritizing prayer over everything else. Now I know we're IHOP Atlanta International House of Prayer and well, gosh, if you're not prioritizing prayer, what are you doing? But uh, you know, even people that have a 24 hour house of prayer and, and do this at the, as the center of ministry can, can at times just become casual and just become used to what you're, what you're supposed to be doing. And the last thing that I want is to have a name on our sign that's not an actuality in our hearts and in our lives. And so we're calling everybody back to the place of prayer and fasting and worship before the Lord. And, and we're just saying for the next several months, uh, we need uh, to, to just sort of regroup in the place of prayer because right now in our nation, this is what we need. We need to be spiritually awake, seeking the Lord while he, while he can be found, calling upon him while he's near, fasting, weeping, mourning, repenting, asking God to release mercy. And here's why. The greatest hour for the church in America is still in front of us. And the greatest hour for our nation is still in front of us. And it doesn't mean that somebody's gonna quote unquote make America great again. What it means is that Jesus has not given up on America and he's gonna release a massive move of the spirit on our nation. That's coming to America. And what we wanna do is be a community that's engaging with the heart of the Lord to see to it that, that we're, we're reverberating, that we're, we're in sync with what's on his mind and on his heart and that, that we're engaging with his desire to see awakening come to America again. So, uh, you know, last week I just said, look at your personal time. Look at your recreation time. Uh, figure out when you can cut off time that's just wasted time and, and use it for uh, a greater volume of prayer and seeking the Lord. Uh, look at your mornings, your, your, your lunch hours, your evenings, your, your, your time with your family. And, and I'm not saying, you know, delete family time for prayer. I'm saying maybe do that as a family thing and, and individually and, and let's increase the volume of prayer corporately. And that's what we said last week. And, and I just ended by saying we're living in a Joel 2 hour. It's a time for us to seek the Lord. And so that's how we ended last week. And, and so this week I wanna mush, mush on, mush forward, mush forward. I don't know. Anyway, um, the words just come sometimes and you just, whatever, you have to own them. Once they, once they come out, you go, well, I own that one. 
We're going to move forward. That's the word I was hoping for. I think I put push and move together and got mush, like mush you doggies. But, but you're not doggies. Okay, here we go. We're going to actually do this. Help Jesus. Come back, Holy Spirit. Come on back. Help me right now. Um, we're going to move forward. We're going to talk about the vision for night and day prayer. And, uh, and really what I want to do tonight is I want to engage with the heart of the Lord. And, and I want to take a, a look at a side of Jesus that we don't tend to look at. And so uh, look at Matthew 21, 13, right there in your notes. And, uh, and like I said, I'll reference the verses that are there. But for, for those of you that like me to go through every little point, I'm going to frustrate you tonight. Just forgive me. Just, just be released of that just for one night. You can go back and le- read it later. But uh, let's look at this passage in Matthew 21. This is right here at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's going to be crucified in just a few days. It's at the Passover. There's people from all over the place gathering to Jerusalem. It's, it's one of the, the key convocations, festivals of the Lord. And uh, there's literally people from everywhere crowding Jerusalem. And so Jesus... He goes to the temple mount and he is about to make a statement. Verse 12 says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You've made it a den of thieves. Now, growing up in the Lord as a, as a young man, I remember hearing teaching on this passage and virtually every time I heard teaching on this passage, it was always about how God wanted to cleanse your heart of the thieves in your temple. Anybody ever hear that teaching? Just me? Okay, so just me. But anyway, uh, it was always about this specific application of the Lord cleansing our own hearts or it depended on who was actually preaching. If you ever got somebody that was maybe a, a traveling minister, they would apply it to your church and they'd say, God wants to cleanse the, the devils out of your church, you know, and cleanse the thieves out of the temple. Well, the thing about it is in context, we actually see a completely different thing that's going on here. And so I want you, I want to get your mind around it. There's two times in Jesus' life where we actually see him get physical. He actually gets physical with people because something is burning in his heart so deeply. This is one of those times. It only, only happens twice, and this is one of those times. Now, we're familiar with this story. If you've been in the church any amount of time, you get familiar with the stories, and you don't really picture what's going on there, but I want you to get your mind around it. See, I was in Jerusalem this year. I was on the Temple Mount. It's a huge area. I mean, just huge, many, many times bigger than this room, probably 10 to 20 times bigger than this room. And, um, and I was standing out there and I was trying to imagine what it was like. I, I just literally got away from the tour guide and just walked over to the side because I was trying to imagine what it was like for Jesus to be running around throwing tables over in this makeshift marketplace that they've, they created on the outer courts. And I'm just trying to picture our Jesus 
the one that we love, our Savior, our Lord, the, the, the tender Jesus who, who bows in the dirt you know, with the woman caught in adultery who has children come up to him, says, suffer the little ones, come to me. He's so tender, he's so kind. He's, he's love incarnate, our Jesus, and he is fired up. And he's running around like a wild man, flipping over tables, dumping over, you know, vases of coins. I mean, and that, the whole thing is stone up there. So that would have just been like, I mean, everybody would have heard it. And he's, I mean, it's a huge area. And he drives out all of them. He gets them all out. And there's enough people up there, money changers and guys that are selling stuff, there's enough of them up there to serve all the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem from all over Judea and roundabout. So this is a huge thing. And it's right there before he's about to be crucified. He's making a statement. And we tend to not realize that this is actually a, a, a critical theme of the life of Jesus. He only gets physical, like I said, in, at this time and one other time. And those two times bookend his ministry and it's over the same issue. So I wanna look at the other time and then I wanna come back to this time and, and let's just think about this whole thing. John chapter two, it's right there on the bottom of your page. That's the first time that he does this thing. Let's read the passage. John 2, verse 14, it's Passover. This one is at the beginning of his ministry. He's been in ministry about six months at this time. Okay, he's about six months in. And I, you know, I just always kind of try to put myself in the shoes of the people in the story. And I think, I wonder what the, what the disciples thought at that point. You know, they just got sort of picked and sort of good things are happening and miracles are sort of breaking out and it's like an awesome time and he's got some miracles going and, and they're thinking we're going to Jerusalem now during Passover, surely everybody's gonna be there and Jesus is about to blow everybody's mind. This is gonna be awesome. Well, he's about to blow everybody's mind but it's not gonna be awesome in the way they think. It's gonna be awesome but not what they're, not what they're maybe bargaining for. Six months in, I think probably the disciples were thinking, this is the moment. All of Israel will see the Messiah. They'll all accept him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the whole Sanhedrin, maybe they'll fall in line with Messiah right now. Here's what Jesus does. Let's read the passage, walk through it. It says, and he found in the temple those who sold auction and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he'd made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Let's just jump into the story. There it is, Passover, 30 AD. 
Here's Jesus, onset of his ministry. The people probably know something is going on. There's a new prophet in town. They probably heard about the water to wine in Cana of Galilee. It was probably getting noised abroad that he would be at the Passover. This is interesting. Here's Jesus, and he walks up on the Temple Mount, and he surveys it, and the whole place is a makeshift market. And they're selling sheep and oxen and doves, and there's money changers. Well, why are they selling all that stuff? Well, there are a couple reasons. The reason why they're selling the animals is this. All the pilgrims that were coming to Jerusalem for the feast, they actually had to have animals to sacrifice. They wouldn't bring them from, you know, somewhere far away and run the animal all over and then do the sacrifice. They'd actually purchase the animal in Jerusalem to do their sacrifices for the, fe- for the, for the feast, for the festival. So when they would, what they would do is they would put their market right up on top of the Temple Mount so nobody, they would miss nobody. Everybody was coming to that place. So they put their market right there in the outer courts on top of the Temple Mount. Well, here's the thing. When the pilgrims would show up to do the feast and there is an ox for sale, the guy that's selling the ox has, he's upcharged the ox one and a half to two times. It's kind of like when you go to a football game and you go buy a hot dog and it's $15. (laughs) It's that thing. Except for this isn't a football game. This is the feast of Passover. It's a holy convocation unto the Lord. It's a festival. It's a right to be be, uh, practiced and and celebrated. And and it's a time for for Israel to come back and, and worship God and remember the deliverance of God from Egypt and to look forward to the deliverance of God for the ages to come. It's a time for Israel to come back. It's a time of revival. The money changers and the, <clears throat> the market tiers are there and they're, they're selling their stuff on the Temple Mount. Why do you need money changers? Here's why. Every male in Israel who was 20 and over, they had to pay a temple tax. Well, it was natural for them to pay that temple tax when they would come to the feasts. So they would show up getting ready to make their, their payment to give their, their temple tax. And the thing was, the temple tax had to be paid in Jewish money. It couldn't be paid in... And, and Roman money, which was what was exchanged throughout all of Israel. And so they would show up with the Roman money and they would give the money to the, the money changers and then they would get their, their, their Jewish money so that they could pay the temple tax. Well, the deal was when they would go to change the money, the exchange rate would be out of sight. And so they would use the feast of the Lord to profit. There they were right there in front of the temple and they're upcharging people, they're gouging people, and they're doing it happily. Why? For their own greed and their own fatness. Here's our Jesus, our Jesus, who stoops in the dirt with adulteresses and and has little children come up to him, and he's the most joyful man that's ever lived. And he walks up on that temple mountain, he looks around. And something hits his heart. And he gets this look on his face. And the disciples, again, remember, they've only been with him just a few months. They're looking at him. They're like, he doesn't, he doesn't really look right. Something's, his eyes are like real intense. His face, he's got like really intense, 
like his furrowed brow, like what's going on with him? And what we don't actually see in the story is this. It says, he found them who sold ox and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And in verse 15, it, it skips to when he made a whip of cords. Well, he's not a cowboy. It's not like he showed up with a whip. So there he is on the temple mount. He sees all of this. He surveys the whole thing. The disciples are looking at him. And Jesus, after he takes it all in and something is sparked in his heart, he literally has to walk off the temple mount to go to one of the local trees. And you see them there. There are these trees with these wispy kind of branches. And, and, and commentators tell us he would have had to break the branches off and tie them together to make a whip and then go back into the temple court. Our Jesus is just like getting, I mean, just, the word that comes to mind is crunk. He's getting crunk. He's just, I mean, he's, he's got this whip and he comes back up on the temple mount. The disciples are looking at him and they're thinking, oh, this is not how we thought this was gonna go. We thought he was gonna heal some people, get some. And here's our Jesus, our Jesus, the one we love, the one that, who we've sworn our allegiance to, the one who is the savior and the Lord of our lives, our Jesus, tender Jesus, who loves us and is tender to us in our weakness. And he has got the whip in his hand and he's swinging it at people. He's swinging it at people. How do you drive people out? You're either hitting them with the whip or it's like, boom, like right in their face. It says he drove them all out. He's flipping over their tables and swinging this whip at them and dumping their money out. This is a scene. This is a Passover to remember. <laughs> this is crazy town right now at Passover. And Jesus is the one doing it. Our Jesus, swinging a whip, hitting people, flipping tables, throwing money, letting doves go. I mean, it's like, what is going on here? And he stands up and he tells them, take these things away. Get it all out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. It was never supposed to be about this. It was never supposed to be about you getting rich on the festivals of God. Get it out of here. You see, what we find when you study the Bible, when you study the Old Testament progression of temple worship is this. You find this. You find David, and we'll talk about the, the establishment of the tabernacle of David. We'll talk about that in a week ahead. But David sets up the tabernacle of David with night and day worship and prayer. Moses, prior to him, sets up the tabernacle of the wilderness where, they, where they're doing the mosaic sacrificial system. Both of those are happening simultaneously during David's uh, reign. And then when Solomon builds the temple, they combine them. And they do both of those in the temple. Now, in the seasons when Israel was faithful to God, both of those worship experiences were taking place. 
And the Levites would, would, you know, they would do, they would service the Lord in both of those ways. Uh, with the sons of Aaron during the, doing the physical animal sacrifices, and the Levites and the gatekeepers, they were doing the worship and prayer. And those things happened simultaneously inside the temple. Well, when Israel would go into backsliding, the kings would begin to shut down the temple and, and they, would, they would begin to worship false gods. They wouldn't do the sacrificial system. They wouldn't do night and day prayer. They would, they would shut the whole thing down. But then when they would have these seasons of revival, the king would come and he would open the temple back up. He would reinstitute the, the sacrificial system. He would get the Levites to start doing night and day prayer again. You see this actually seven different times. I'll furnish that for you in a, in a later outline in this series. But you see it seven different times where every time when they backslid, they stopped the, the sacrifices and they stopped the night and day prayer. And every time they got into a season of, of returning to the Lord, they, they started it again with the sacrifices and with the night and day prayer every single time. Except for this time, what's weird is this. They've actually got the sacrificial system going but they don't have the night and day prayer. Why would they do that? So they can make money. So they can make money on the feasts. And so that they can extort money from the people so the people would still be paying their temple taxes. See, the sacrificial system showed an outward expression of devotion while the night and day worship showed a heart expression of devotion. And what you have here at this time in Israel's history is they've got the outside, but they don't have the inside. And Jesus shows up and he's fired up about it. Take it all away. You've, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise, which is what they had done. They had dialed it down to just being about the money. And it's in that moment that the disciples, they're, they're looking at Jesus. And I think the entire time they're bewildered, swinging a whip and flipping tables. And what have we gotten ourselves into? You ever, after you got saved, you ever like, oh, this is awesome. He loves me, he loves me. And then there's like this intense time of, of like, maybe the Lord's calling you to give something up or to, to you know, cut off a relationship that's bad or there's a, there's a holiness thing going on. You're like, man, what did I get myself into? I think the disciples are having that, like they're having to come to Jesus right now. They're like, what is going on? And they're dealing with the reality of what it means to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who's, full of zeal and full of fire. And so in that moment of bewilderment, the Holy Spirit helps them and he drops Psalm 69 into their heart. They understood, oh, this is Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. See, Psalm 69 it was a psalm that David wrote. And I love reading David in Old Testament Messianic prophets, and here's why. A lot of times you'll find that when they're prophesying, they're speaking first person about what's happening to them, and that whole thing that's going on with them is actually something that we will see fulfilled in the life of Messiah, in the life of Jesus. So Psalm 69, I've got it there in your notes somewhere. Let's see, where is it? Page two? Yeah, page two. 
Let's just read through it and let's just get a picture of what was clicking for the disciples when they, when they saw Jesus doing this. Psalm 69, verse 4, 7, 9 through 12. This is what David was experiencing and this is what Jesus experienced. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, they, though I've stolen nothing, I still must restore it because for your sake, O oh Lord, is the idea. For your sake, O oh Lord, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you, they've fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. And I also made sackcloth my garment and I became a byword to them. And those who sit in the gate, they speak against me. I am the song of the drunkards. That verse 12 is so interesting to me. So interesting. Those who speak in the gate, that was talking about the city elders and the, the leading men of the city. They were, they'd sit in the city gates to do commerce. Well, when they were sitting in the city gates, they would mock David. I'd say, what is that thing he's got going on? Look at all those musicians. He's wasting all their time and all that money. Why? Why would they do that? I mean, musicians singing, playing before the ark? What in the world? Why would they have such a waste? Those who sit in the gates were talking negatively about David. Well, the same thing was going on with Jesus. Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees plotting all the while, how can we kill him? Those who destroy him were more than the hairs of his head. But then verse 12, the second part, and I'm the song of drunkards. See, not only was it the guys that were exalted, that were these main leaders that were plotting and destruction and talking negatively and all this, it was the, it was the, the winos, the guys in the gutter. In other words, from the top to the bottom and everybody in between, they're all rallying against King David and his heart for the Lord. And the same was the case with Jesus. Till even those that are drunk on wine and, and living that kind of lifestyle, just like debauchery, they're singing songs to mock. You know, there's an interesting thing, and I've seen this in the church, I don't know, I've been saved a while, almost 30 years. But I remember as a young man, they used to tell me <clears throat> uh, that there are intercessors and then there's the rest of us. And that intercessory group, you go in there and they're a little weird. Those prayer people, you know, you don't wanna be too weird. Don't do too much of that. Those prayer people, they're a little weird. And I remember as a young man trying to find the office or the ministry gift of intercession. And I couldn't find it because it's not there. In other words, nothing in the Bible that says only a certain group of people are the intercessors. Do you know why? Because we're all called to be intercessors. Because Jesus Christ is the great intercessor. And we're called to his ministry. There's not one little group that's the intercessors. That is a fallacy. The whole church is to be, they're so, they're be 
they're to be so connected with the heart of Jesus that they're, they're moving with what's moving on his heart and they're making requests. What if the bride of Christ actually found her identity as a partner with God and made intercession according to his will? The problem is for so long, we've put the intercessors in a closet by themselves and we've made them a byword. And we thought they were the weird group. Well, they might be, but that's not the point. Somehow we thought, oh, that's just for the old ladies. Like prayer is just for the old ladies. What is that? It's false is what that is. I met a lady, I gotta tell you this. I met a lady this week. So I, I, I did a two day, just a quick little conference for a leading Pentecostal denomination. I won't say which one it is. A leading Pentecostal denomination. And there were par- prayer leaders from this entire denomination all gathered together. And that's who I was speaking to. It was about 25 prayer leaders that are over about 2000 plus churches. And I met this one little lady. Her name was Beulah, glory to God. Glory to God, Beulah, hallelujah, Isaiah 62, married to the Lord, come on, and uh, she's 84 years old, she got saved when she was eight, get this, she was an orphan, her mother died when she was nine months old, she said, she goes, I don't even know who raised me. I don't know who nursed me because back in that day, they didn't have infamil. You just didn't, you had to have somebody nurse the child. She goes, I don't even know who nursed me. My father was an alcoholic. My mother was dead. My sister and I, we, we grew up living on the street underneath a, a, a lamppost. And this woman from this church asked if she could adopt us She said, my father wouldn't allow her to adopt us, but he let us live with her until he passed. And then she adopted us. She said, as soon as I moved in with this lady, I got saved. She said, something happened to me and I fell in love with Jesus immediately when I heard the gospel. And she said, this lady and her husband, they were were serious Christians. And this woman was such a woman of prayer. This, This woman that she'd moved in with, she said she would be praying throughout her house, just talking to the Lord. And she said, I would be eight, nine years old. And I would think she was calling my name. And I'd say, ma'am. And she said, oh no, 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 I'm talking to the Lord. And she said, when this woman passed at 30 years old, this woman died when she was 30. She said, I asked the Lord, can I have that mantle of prayer that's on her? And then she said this, she goes, and I got it. And I got it. And she goes, and prayer has been my daily delight ever since. I wake up with Jesus on my heart. I go to bed at night with Jesus on my heart. I talk to Jesus all day, every day. And this woman is employed by a Christian college and they give her the name of every student of that college and she prays for them by name. She, get this, she said, she goes, if the kids come to this college, my job is to make sure they will never go to hell. She goes, they may not get saved while they're here, but they will not go to hell. Come on. So, so I'm there and I'm ministering to these people. I'm thinking, I need somebody to minister to me, my God. And they said, oh, you know, would you pray for her? Well, I pray for her. 
I literally, I walk up to her and I just go, this is wrong. I get, I get on my knees. I'm like, this is just all wrong. <laughs> and I just put my hands on her feet. And <laughs> it hits me. Anna was 84 years old who didn't depart from the temple night and day, but serve God with fastings and prayers. This lady, I started praying over her and I said, the grace that was on Anna, and it, I can't even talk after I say that, I just start wailing and tears falling out of my eyes on her feet. <laughs> That's what my prayer was. <laughs> Sorry, it's the best I can do. But I was just touched with what if the church could get a revelation of what it means to walk in friendship with God and all that the whole bride of Christ would be intercessors. And we'd quit thinking it's for the weirdos that you gotta put in the closet. Come on, man, that's, that's just horrifying. And that's never what Jesus' intention was. In fact, why does Jesus get so fired up over the fact that the temple had become a place of commerce? See, in John 2, the beginning of his ministry, it's a warning shot. Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. It clicks for the disciples. Oh, this is the Davidic zeal. This is the zeal for my house will consume you. That's why he's flipping the tables. That's why he's turning all this over. But look back again now at Matthew 21. Three years later, it's the end of his ministry. Let's just step back into the story again. Think about it now. Back in that day, not only did you not change jobs every five to 10 years like we do, you worked the same job your whole life and then you trained your kids to do that job and then they worked that same job and then they trained their kids and then they worked that same job. These guys all worked the same jobs their whole life. So three years later, after that first Passover to remember, Jesus is gonna go back to the Passover. He's gonna get back on the Temple Mount and there's still people up there and they're still selling oxen and sheep and doves and they're still changing money. And guess what? It's the same people. Had to be, because that's how they did. They did the same job their whole life. And I just always, just kind of in my mind, I just think, I wonder what they were doing up there. They're sitting there thinking and they're probably doing what you and I do at holidays. They're reminiscing about the last holiday. Remember last year? Remember, remember that one time? And then they're up there talking and maybe they go, remember that crazy time? That crazy prophet guy came in and threw everything over and yeah, man, I lost my doves that day. They all flew out. Well, man, I had to go like track down my oxen. They're out in the street. He drove them all off the temple. Man, I, I spent the whole afternoon picking my coins up out of the cracks between the, the rocks on the, on the pavement here. Man, that was crazy. That guy just lost his mind, went and turned everything over. What a nut. Yeah, he was a nut. I mean, he was a complete, look right there. Is that him? And there's Jesus with that mean look again. <laughs> I think that's him. That's, that's him. That's for sure that's him. And the disciples are looking at him. They're going, man, Jesus, so good to be here at Passover. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus. And they're like, man, I saw that look. That's the same look. 
and he does it again. He blows the whole place up. Have you thought this through? I mean, I know when we think about the life of Jesus, we focus on critical points. I know, we focus on the incarnation. It's fantastic, it's phenomenal. God became a man, I preach on it every year. I can't, I, I can't even get my heart or mind around how phenomenal it is. We, we focus on the cross, that God would die and take our sin upon himself. He would allow humanity, who he came to give life, to put him to death, like we focus on, oh my goodness. And we focus on the resurrection. I mean, death couldn't hold him. He got up out of the grave, raised himself from the dead. Who does that? But there's a broader story happening. You see, he bookends his ministry at the Temple Mount. And he makes a statement, not just to Israel. He makes a statement to the people of God through every generation for all ages. He said, there's something that's firing my heart up. There's something my heart is burning about. It's something I'm willing to get physical about. It's the only time he ever got like this. And the message was exactly the same. It's a little nuanced, but at the same point. And here, Matthew 21, three years later, look at what he said. Instead of a warning, which is what he does in John 2, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Here, it's a judgment. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. It's not, don't make it a house of merchandise. It's, you've made it a den of thieves. Now, these two statements, they're, they're rich with revelation. They're rich with understanding. Okay, so first piece, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's a prophecy. He's quoting Isaiah 56, six and seven. He's talking about the age to come when he comes back and he rules and reigns from Jerusalem and he will rule and reign from the tabernacle of David. Isaiah 16, five tells us he will rule and reign on the earth from the place of night and day worship and prayer. He said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's a prophecy. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. The house of the people of God, my house, his house, the house of the people of God, it will be a house of prayer. In other words, he's saying to them, it doesn't matter how backslidden you are, one thing is certain, my house will be a house of prayer. Now this is an interesting statement, it's a prophecy that will come to pass, but it's a cultural statement. It's a statement about the expected culture that the people of God are supposed to carry. See, notice it says, shall be called. It says, shall be called. That's an interesting thing because it's talking about people looking at the house from the outside and recognizing that what happens in, in that group that's right there, the people of God, they pray. They shall be called. House of prayer. It's, it's talking about others identifying the people of God as a people of prayer. What's interesting to me is the defining thing is prayer. Because you would think, you would think in a minute after the resurrection, he's about to give the great commission. You would think he just told everybody to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, preach the gospel. You would think he might say, my house should be called a house of preaching or proclamation. 
or a house of the word, the Torah. Why not? Or, or, or why not a house of miracles and manifestations? Because that's what confirms the, the word, signs and wonders following. Why not a house of miracles, a house of visitation? I don't know, a house of justice. There's so many things it, it could have been called. But my house shall be called a house of prayer. Why? Because the distinguishing attribute of the people of God is supposed to be that they have communion with God. They have communion with God. And furthermore, this, the seedbed of the kingdom, the seedbed for all kingdom activity that happens in the earth is the soil of prayer. Nothing happens of kingdom effect on the earth in this age without it first being established through the vehicle of prayer. So by saying my house should be called a house of prayer, he's saying, and it will be a house of preaching and it will be a house of miracles. It'll be a house of justice because when the people of God are in communion with their God, preaching happens, miracles happen, justice happens. Everything of the kingdom happens. Prayer is the soil, it's the foundation. My house shall be called, it shall be known as a house of prayer. And another way I think Jesus is showing up and he's saying this, he's going, guys, guys, you already know what the Bible says. You already know what Isaiah prophesied. Where's the prayer? Where's the prayer? Let me just mention this. <clears throat> because we're silly enough to name our ministry House of Prayer. This is not about a ministry name. My house should be called House of Prayer. And, and it's almost like we're like, sweet, let's put it on the sign. And I would just tell you as a leader of a ministry called House of Prayer that actually has 24 hour worship and prayer that happens. There's always a little bit of a tension in my soul because the last thing I want, seeing how zealous and jealous and serious Jesus is about this issue, is to have the name on the sign but lack the reality in our, in our community. Because anybody can go through the motions on anything even 24-hour prayer. There has to be a reality in our heart that actually grips us and compels us far beyond a ministry name, far beyond anything, quote-unquote, we're doing for God. There's a zeal. What is that? It's a passion from heaven that's available really to anybody who wants it, but it's certainly available to us that we would have this agreement with the heart of heaven and that that place of encounter, which is what Jesus was, it's what he was serious about, that there would be a place of encounter for the people of God, that there would be a culture amongst the people of God, that communion with God would be in first place. That's what he's fired up about, that they had traded communion for commerce. But that there would be that, that 
hunger and that desire for communion and for the presence of God and it would be first in the heart of the people of God. Zeal would consume us and we'd be zealous for the very thing that he's zealous about. You see, when he goes on and he says, den of thieves, he's quoting Jeremiah 7 and I'll just, I'll just give it to you quick. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah stands in Solomon's temple courts. Jesus is in Zerubbabel slash Herod's temple. It's the rebuilt version. But Jeremiah stands in the first temple and he says, hey guys, the Lord says something to you. He says this, you've lost the heart of it. And you say, because you've got the temple, God will not judge you. But he goes, I tell you, look at Shiloh. And Shiloh had been where the tabernacle had been and God had brought judgment on Shiloh because the people's hearts had gone far from it. He goes, I say, look at Shiloh. God destroyed that. And the Lord says, he'll do the same to this place because you've made it a den of thieves. So Jeremiah prophesied in the temple courts and it was fulfilled when Babylon came and brought destruction. Jesus says, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a, quoting Jeremiah, den of thieves. And in three chapters, he's gonna say, there won't be one stone left upon another. Because your hearts are far from him. Guys, I'm not trying to bring rebuke, rebuke to us, a rebuke, a rebuke to us. That's not my point. My point is this, that you and I can agree with the zeal that's in God's heart and something can happen to us. As a people that wanna prioritize prayer, that wanna be a part of a 24-hour place of, of worship and adoration, something can happen to us where there's a radical gripping of our hearts and the zeal of God begins to consume you. It begins to possess you. I've been doing this a little while. I've been doing house of prayer for over 12 years, 13 and a half, almost 14 years now. And I will just be honest, there's a lot of times where physically in the flesh, I don't wanna come. I just don't wanna come. My bed is comfortable at 5 a.m. in the morning, glory. It is. And sometimes, you know, nights are late and mornings are early and you gotta peel yourself up out of the bed. And, uh, and you just got to kind of come. And, and, and you know what? I'll just, this past week, I had to come in. I had to come in at 5.45 a.m. Some of you have never seen, you've never seen 5.45 on your clock. <laughs> I'm going to pray for grace that you can see 5.45 sometime in your life. Anyway, 20-year-olds, 5.45 is a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. No, actually, 20-year-olds are carrying our night watch. They, they know about 5.45. But um, I got in at one, I was with that conference, those, those sweet Pentecostal people in Anna, Beulah. I got in at one, I had to be up at five to be here at 5.45. And everything in my flesh, in my mind said, there's no reason to do this. It's not worth it. It's dumb. Just stay in bed, call in sick, call in tired. <laughs> call in, don't call in. And as I'm going to bed, I'm going, Lord, I don't even want to do that. And then I just think, but you, you're worthy of me and the one other person that's going to be in that room tomorrow. See, there's something that happens when God's zeal begins to grip your heart 
what happens is his worth becomes more valuable than anything to you. His worth, his glory, the love of him, his presence becomes more valuable even in the days when all you can offer is, uh, here I am. My prayers last Friday were, uh, I hope you like it because uh is all I got today, but it's all for you. It's all for you. I want to enter into this thing that Jesus got serious about. The zeal that gripped his heart, I want that same zeal to grip my heart and to grip our heart as a community. I don't want to just go through the motions. I mean, there is a time when you do things by faith without feeling it, and I get that point, but I don't want to just go through the motions, having a name that we're alive, but we're dead on the inside. I actually don't feel that's the case with this right now. I feel like there's a lot of of wonderful things happening in people's hearts and just how, how God's encountering and engaging people, but I really feel like this, that there is a level of connecting to the zeal that's on the inside of him that can grip us and compel us in a whole nother way. And that's what I want. That's what I want to direct us to. You know, just as we're closing, I want to, I want to understand and know the zeal that's in His heart. I want to understand why Jesus, why He bookended His ministry like that. I want that. What's fiery in Him? I want that to be fiery in me, and I want it to compel the way I live. I want it to compel the decisions I make, and and I want it to to direct my life. I, I, I want to step into that thing where zeal for the house of the Lord, where it eats me up too. And I believe that's why you're here. I believe, you know, if you're connecting the house of prayer, if this is your spiritual family, if we're your church, if you're on staff or, or whatever, I know that you're not here just because you want to goof around. Like, I know you want to have that heart that's burning. And some people I know, look, I know you live 45 minutes away. And it's like everything you can do to just get here like one time a week. I get that point. That the point isn't only show up to IHOP, but for those of us that live closer and it's doable and you can take a lunch break or you can take an early morning hour or, or you can take an evening time, this is the hour to seek the Lord while he may be found. This is the hour to agree with the zeal that's in the heart of the Lord and to allow it to compel us. And for those of you that live further away, you can carve it out of your schedule. Do it with your family. You know, do it early in the morning with, with your spouse or by yourself. Do it at your lunch hour. You don't have to run here. There's something about the community when you're, when you're here in the place. But, but man, no, the point is just to prioritize it in your life. And let's increase the volume of prayer. And let's allow the very zeal that was in Jesus' heart to burn in our heart. Amen.